Welcome to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 19. And I just came off of that three-part series about how to buy lumber. And I kind of ditched my original format of doing like a single topic show and then answering questions on the next show in favor of getting that buying lumber series done because I know a lot of people express interest in it. So needless to say, there have been some questions backing up. There's been some industry news backing up. So I'm going to dive in this week with a whole variety of topics. And I might end up doing a couple more shows after this just to catch up with some of the questions. So first and foremost, thank you everybody for for continuing to listen to the show, continue to be interested in the show and sending in questions, sending in uh, stories that you're finding on the internet. It's it's fantastic. It's, it's It was always kind of the doubt in my head is would people find this show uh, interesting? Would we continue to find cool stuff to talk about? And so far, there seems to be no end to the things that we can cover. So I, I do want to jump kind of right into some of the feedback that I've gotten. And again, some of these may touch on episodes that happened quite some time ago since I took that buying guide break or whatever. But uh, Tommaso wrote in in reference to a gentleman who wrote about uh, some of his private land. And Tommaso says, you had a question from a guy who just bought some land and wanted to get some trees milled and whether to bring someone in or haul the logs out, etc. I think you might have missed an option open to him, which is to have a timber company come in and sell off some of his trees. If he's got a large enough lot and desirable trees and the market is strong enough, he could have his land selectively timbered and request some of the logs for himself. He potentially makes some money along the way. This is a, a great third option. Now, you have to... the Finding somebody that can do this may be the most difficult part. Uh, the large commercial logging companies are looking for large bits of land, you know, that to make it worth their while, they're looking to haul out a substantial tonnage of logs. And if it's, you know, to selectively harvest, if it's, you know, if it's a softwood forest, the best bet is to come in and probably clear cut it. Well, that could be a problem depending where the lot of the, where the plot of land is, how close it is to neighbor's land, whether or not you want your land clear cut or not. If it's hardwood, it will be selectively forested. The uh, forestry company needs to come in and kind of survey the land and figure out where the trees that uh, sustainably should be or could be taken down without affecting the, the ecosystem. You may also run into situations where suddenly environmental impact studies have to be done. It all depends upon where the land is and how much open land is around it. You know, if you have a couple hectares of land surrounded by thousands of hectares around you, it may not be that big of a deal. But you have to be very, very cautious if you have your land commercially logged that there isn't some sort of environmental impact and you don't want to get sued by, you know, somebody like Greenpeace five years from now because they've discovered that you did this. And yes, it is your own land, but there has been legal precedent that can cause problems here. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm sounding very negative on this idea is it is a very legitimate idea and done correctly. It actually can be a really boon, a boon to the landowner because, A, you can get some of the logs, some of the wood that you actually wanted. B, you make some money by selling some of your land and you could possibly set up a longer term contract where that company could come back every couple of years and thin things out and, 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 you know, buy some of those logs from you or give you some of the logs they've cut down. So it's, it's legitimate. Just be aware that, you know, there's always strings attached, right? You got to be very cautious about this and making sure that uh, everything is on the up and up, which Brings me to my next point, though. If you do contract a company, they know this stuff and they're going to be aware of these things because they have to deal with it in their day in and day out of their business. If you just call some dude on Craigslist who's going to come out and, you know, saw some stuff up with a wood miser, you got to be a little cautious there because you don't know all those extenuating circumstances. 
My apologies to the lawyers in the audience, but there are a lot of lawyers out there, folks, and there's always someone who's going to be ticked off by what you're doing, who has enough money to hire a lawyer and take you to court over it. So just because it's my private land does not actually mean that much. And if there are lawyers who want to speak up and say, you're wrong, it does mean something, I would love to hear it because I've heard legal precedent where companies like Greenpeace have come in and caused all kinds of problems on a private landowner's land by taking down some trees because it hurt you know, a bug or a squirrel. And I love the bugs and the squirrels as much as the next guy. It's just one of those things you got to be very, very cautious about. Thank you, Tommaso. Very, very good point. Uh, Todd wrote in about the, um, the tariff issue that we talked about a while back. He says on your recent podcast on tariffs, it was very accurate, but there is one thing many people leave out. The exchange rate between the U.S. and Canadian dollar currently makes up for more than 20 percent, excuse me, makes up more than the 20 percent tariff and anti-dumping duties that we have imposed on the Canadian forest industry. Unfortunately, there has either been duties or um, the, the SLA, the Software Lumber Agreement, since the mid 80s. I think it goes back to the mid-70s, doesn't it, Todd? Maybe that's the anti-dumping. Regardless, it's been there decades. So I don't I don't agree with the tariffs. This is Todd speaking. I don't agree with the tariffs, but it is something the lumber industry has had to deal with for a very long time. It's very true, and it's funny that this has all come up very recently. And, you know, it's all a political thing. Everybody's blaming Trump, you know, and it, it, this actually happened during the Obama administration. People got mad at Obama. And if you go back far enough, you'll see that people were getting mad at um, George H.W. Bush. I don't think W had to deal with this, but he had that whole war thing going on. This has been going on for a while. And, and whoever's in the White House at the time gets vilified for it. So, yeah, it's it's one of those things that it, it it's nothing new. And it's a very key point that that exchange rate does cause all kinds of problems. And even without the tariffs, that is a major issue when lumber is shipped across the border. So it's a global economy. We, as North Americans, also end up on the nice end of the deal when we're importing lumber from far-flung reaches of Asia as well. So yeah, exchange rates are certainly something to be uh, considered. I know there's many a times in my office where we've got a, a container of some material that's on order and the sawmill gets to us and says, okay, we're about ready to ship this. And it's like, well, let's check the markets first. And it's like, okay, can you ship it today? Because the euro to the dollar or whatever it is, whatever the, the uh, usually it's a lot of euro because there's a lot of European companies. But, you know, we can come out ahead on the deal. Or, of course, at the same time, that company is thinking, hey, we're going to make more money because of the exchange right now. Right now, So we're just going to ship it right now. And then they call us three days later and say, oh, we shipped it. And here's the invoice. And you're like, no, you were not supposed to do that until you talk to us. But, you know, such is life. Got to play the exchange rate game. Uh, Todd does go on to say that um, also on the thermally modified wood that I talked about, the company that I, Todd, worked for for uh, sold a few truckloads of the material back when it started getting popular. They were using number two southern yellow pine and all the flat grain raised and the decks were built out of them were unacceptable and there were two lawsuits I know resulting from it. Personally, I think the product in question was overbaked and the wood also became brittle. Yeah, um, this is a major problem. Um, and I'm not just talking about thermally modified wood. I'm talking about some of the composite decking material. Um, I'm talking about uh, even some of the, uh, not specifically the Akoya brand, but those chemically modified type products. I mean, even going back to the early days of pressure treated, and you still have issues with pressure treated material. Anytime we are modifying the material, there's still 
stuff that can happen. Um, there's so many variables at play dependent upon where that exterior wood is laid down, how it's been used, how it's been joined, what finish went over top of it, and what the individual species were and where that tree came from. You know, the, the key example of showing that wood is truly organic is the, um, the guy that bought a bunch of oak uh, from a sawmill near Seattle and stuff was great he was working with it and then he put another board through and it like destroyed his blades and he replaced his you know pulled out the board and couldn't figure out what the problem was but his blade was like run down to nothing so he you know, bought a new blade ran a couple boards everything was fine ran another board through and bam it did it again and destroyed his blade and he did a little digging only to find out that some of those trees were logged on the downwind side of Mount St. Helens. The other trees were on the other side of the hill and didn't get the full blast of Mount St. Helens. So basically the trees in the path of Mount St. Helens were like, I don't know, we'll just pick a number, like 30% volcanic ash. So it was like one giant... pumice stone infused tree and it was like running rocks over his table saw blade and you know all the same species came from the same concession but those trees where they were located totally different log totally different board same thing can happen in in even a more natural way you know without a volcanic eruption just the soil chemistry depending on where it is in relation to a stream where it lies on a hill one log to the next can be totally different and once you start thermally modifying or chemically modifying um, these materials those oddities those unknown variables can cause all kinds of problems but let's face it there's also working at the kinks in the production system and you know we find this great product great push it to market push it to market make a profit on it and were were the long-term studies done no maybe not maybe they were maybe they just didn't take into account everything so anytime you're dealing with a composite or an engineered material you want to have an idea of how long it's been on the market and how has it been traditionally used what studies were done definitely the industry has gotten a lot better about it I don't know the time frame that Todd is talking about here, but I mean, torrified wood's been around for several decades. Same thing with composite decking. It went through major upheaval with mold and delamination of the capstock. All kinds of lawsuits happened there. The composite decking material today is night and day difference from the stuff in the 80s and the 90s. And I think you can say a lot for the thermally modified stuff too. There are companies that really do it right. And there's a lot of companies trying to jump on that bandwagon as well. So you have to be very cautious about what brand of this thermally modified wood am I buying and where was it actually produced? And what you find is that a lot of the material is all produced in the same plant and it's just got a different brand label stuck on it. Same thing with composite decking. When I went and visited the Fiberon plant in North Carolina, they had Home Depot's Veranda brand running. They had Lowe's, um, oh, I'm forgetting what Lowe's calls their their in-house deck. They also had some stuff from Trex running on another line. And then they had Fiberon's own brand of stuff running on all right next to one another. And they came off and they had a sticker slapped on it. It was good to go. I joke as well. Um, my 20 inch grizzly planer is pretty much exactly the same as the Powermatic planer. There's a, you know, American made balder motor in the Powermatic planer as compared to the, the foreign made motor in my grizzly planer, but one's painted green and the other one's painted yellow. And they were produced in the same plant just on different runs you know it's 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 really the same machine the same cast parts the same body parts all that stuff looks exactly the same minus the coat of paint 
yes, there are a few other little details in there that make the Powermatic, you know, uh, maybe a more robust, more durable planer. I don't know. I love my Grizzly planer, so who knows? But yeah, these, I'm getting off topic here, obviously, but these are something, these are the things to think about when you're dealing with engineered materials is there's all kinds of stuff that can go wrong. And ultimately you need to look at how do I want to use it? And is it that far outside of the normal way that this product is used because that's what's been tested. Fact of the matter is, decking is probably the harshest thing you can do to lumber. Maybe even more so than building a wooden boat, because at least you know the the wood in a boat stays submerged and it's kind of more in constant flux, and you can use you know varnishes and things like that to hold it back for a season. Decks get heated up and then cooled all day long. One side of the deck could be in sun all day. The other side is always in shadow. They get rained on. They get all kinds of stuff spilled on them. They are just in, in a terrible, terrible environment. So decks really can can blow up regardless of how well something was dried, how well something was engineered. Decks are a very, very harsh environment. Anyway, that kind of went off a totally different tangent. What else is new, right? So let's look at some industry news. There's been some interesting stuff that's come to light lately. And uh, Scott sent me this article about um, some logging going on in Washington state that is pretty exciting. It is, for once, the logging companies and the environmentalists have actually locked arms and they are thinning some of the forests in, in Washington state specifically to reduce the fire threat. Now, Washington's had some pretty bad forest fire seasons over the last couple years. And I've talked about this on the show before, you know, fire is nature's way of, of kind of culling the herd of keeping the forest healthy and with lots and lots of managed forests or, um, whether it be managed, excuse me, for, for recreation purposes, I, it's not quite a managed forest in the term of logging, but you know, off limits forest for recreation purposes is in a state park. That fire is, is the thinning that happens from logging is not allowed to happen. So these fires spring up and cause major, major problems. So the environmentalists and the loggers have gotten together and said, well, let's selectively thin these forests and keep the forest fire threat down because when the forest burns out of control, certainly it's threats to homes and human lives, but the environmentalists are more concerned about the, the ecology, you know, the recovery from that and the animals and all the things that get displaced when that forest fire happens. So this is kind of exciting. I'd be curious to see how long this goes. I'll, I'll uh, post a link to the article. It's actually an NPR article and there's a, um, an audio recording that goes with it. It's kind of nice to see that maybe we could start thinking a little bit more rationally about managing our forests and that logging is not necessarily evil if it's held in check. And what better way to hold it in check than have an environmental concerned company kind of playing you know, watch guard over the whole thing, but working together instead of saying, you loggers get out of here and you environmentalists go hug a tree somewhere else. You know, let's, let's work together and come up with a proper solution. So this is encouraging to hear that. Now, this story, it's mind bending. And I say bending on purpose because there is a company that is starting to capitalize on the warping of wood. As woodworkers, we understand that wood moves. You know, you get a board that's cupped or twisted. It's because as it's dried, wood dries, moves anisotropically. It moves differently in one direction over the other. So it's going to cup and bow and twist. Well, here's a company that is recognizing rather than steam bending or heat bending our wood or cutting curved shapes out of it, why don't we 
capitalize on wood's natural tendency to cup as it dries and see if we can bend it into the shapes that we want. And they're essentially laminating, cross-laminating, very much like plywood, two sheets of wood and letting them dry into a predetermined shape. So by varying the thickness of each board and even the moisture content, they can get it to bend into like I planned for that cup. And this is kind of mind blowing that you can actually create curved structures relying upon the natural strength of the wood, the natural properties of that wood to to um, to shrink and expand anisotropically. So this is like, you know, building a chair. You see these guys that actually um, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Prune and, and cultivate a tree to grow into a chair shape. What's the word I'm looking for? They put them on trellises and things. And I keep wanting to say train the tree, but training a tiger, not training a tree, whatever. They actually grow a tree shape out of it by you know teasing the tree one direction over another. You're relying upon the natural strength of those fibers. Here, we're relying upon what we consider to be a weakness, that tendency to, to cup, and they're actually making curved shapes out of it. If you uh, Google the Erbach Tower in Erbach, Germany, you'll see this like kind of a double helix twisting tower shape that was built using this process. All of that wood was bent through natural warping. And again, I'll include the article to Popular Mechanics because this is just way cool. I could just see um, kind of getting this down to more of a science and creating specific shapes to order um, by by using this, um, this warping tendency. It's just really, really cool stuff. So in the past, I've spoken about not only the the journey that lumber takes from the forest to your lumber rack, but I've also talked a lot about some of the sustainable harvesting sources and how banning a particular species usually can be the worst thing for the sustainability of that species because the indigenous folks in the forest suddenly now have no reason to to protect that tree. Um, you know, the, their forest is what was was getting them some revenue or they owned some section of forest and they were able to sell it to a logging company in order to feed the family. Well, now suddenly that species of tree is banned and no export of it is allowed, no logging was allowed. And now they have no way to feed their family. So what they do is they go and they contact the cattle rancher who's willing to buy their land. And, you know, now the tree is gone. So the idea being you have to keep in mind the local communities around where the tree grows. And Ashley sent me a great article on Macassar Ebony, and it's specifically from uh, a guy who specializes in Macassar Ebony. He's the guy to go to when you want to buy the stuff. And he's got some great photographs and kind of a good story that talks about the um, forestry practices that they use and the idea of, of certainly no clear cutting, but most importantly, they work entirely with hand log sources logged by the indigenous peoples in that forest. And what has happened as this has essentially created a business for this little village. The, the business of this village is now Macassar Ebony. And certainly they have, you know, community responsibility and stewardship that's built around their forest because not only it's where they live, but it's how they actually are living, how they're making a living. And rather than having this, you know, big company from, let's face it, most of them are from Europe. 
that goes all the way back to the age of imperialism, these European companies coming in and managing this. And yes, they're using indigenous people for workers, but they're not, you know, they don't own the company. They don't have any stake in this. They're just punching a clock. Now we're dealing with companies that are looking to engage the indigenous peoples in a much more meaningful way and a much more financially sound way, giving them some ownership over the land that they're harvesting. And you're finding that sustainable uh, harvestry practices are just happening by their very nature. And this is what I've been saying about the, the much of the logging industry. Go back a couple hundred years. No, it wasn't really the case. But today, the logging industry, the lumber industry is very thoughtful about this stuff because we have to think long term. If we just cut everything down, there won't be any of that material left for us to sell, you know, gosh, at the rate things go a couple of years from now. And then you have to go to your customers and say, I've been supplying this material to you, but I can't anymore because now it's gone. Um, it's up to the people actually selling the wood to manage it responsibly so that they have continued stock over the years so that their business can stay viable over the years. Well, this is what's happening with these indigenous people. They're being given that business. The business of their village now is this forest and selling off these materials and it's it's very cool it's you know it's certainly not uh, a brand new idea but it's certainly a departure from the big businesses coming in and managing these forests so it's worth a worth a link or worth a look and i will include the link as well keeping on the environmental train have you guys heard of the great green wall this is something that's been going on for a while um this is now well there there are two great green walls although they have named them slightly differently one is in china and the other in africa and the idea is let's build a wall of trees aka a forest in order to hold back the desert in china to hold back the gobi desert in africa to hold back the sahara and putting up that that physical boundary of trees is keep keeping the blowing sands from further encroaching on the Sahel areas and the, um, um, I don't know what they call them in China, <laughs> the non-Gobi desert areas. And, you know, the governments have gotten behind this. Now, of course, this is where political gerrymandering comes into play. And China says, oh, we're killing it. And we've got all this set up. And analysts are saying, well, maybe not. It's a little bit more propaganda, but it's still going. You know, they're still building or planting these trees in an effort to kind of hold back the, the desert. And the same thing happening in Africa. They're going at it from slightly different perspectives. And a lot of that is... Um a lot of that is driven by politics and, frankly, money. And the article is worth reading. I will, of course, include a link to it. But this goes back to uh, several episodes ago. I talked about how the whole global warming idea, people have said, the research group in Germany, was it, I think, said global warming could be re reversed, essentially. All of the carbon that the entire history of man has put into the atmosphere could be reversed if we planted all of these, I can't remember the number now, you know, billion hectares of trees. Well, here are some places that those trees could be planted and it's already happening. The Great Green Wall is going into some of those areas that was listed by this study as available land that wouldn't be like encroaching on cities and things like that. So already the work is underway. So I'm, I'm choosing to be optimistic about this. If you read this article um, about the Great Green Wall, you'll see some of the, you know, the seedy underbelly of the whole thing and how it may not be going as well as everyone says it is. But I think the African Green Wall is certainly going along better than the Chinese one. And it certainly gives us hope that um, this idea of planting more trees in order to sequester more carbon could actually work. Yay. So anyway, 
let's move on to some questions, some emails here. Um, I have spoken about composite lumber a fair amount. I talk about it again today. But Dale wrote in and said, um, are there any good composite materials on the market that can be cut and shaped like real wood? And and the answer is yes. Um, Certainly, plastic lumber has been around for a while. They stopped calling it that and called it composite lumber because what makes it cut more like real wood is the composite hybrid nature. There is wood flower, there is wood fiber in there being bound together. The pure plastic stuff um, doesn't quite cut the same as wood because it's not wood. But the issue here is while it will cut and it will route and shape, and you know, you can put a, a profile to edge on a lot of the composite lumber that's out there now, it doesn't look the same. I mean, it, it looks like composite. It looks like, you know, regurgitated termite barf that's been glued together. So it's one of those things you have to think about it if you're going to, if you're going to cut it and shape it you know, it's probably going to be painted or you're embracing the whole plastic lumber idea and you're sticking with it there. But I would say most of the composite material on the market is going to cut and shape like real wood, if not, dare I say, better than real wood. Because real wood has variations in density from early growth to late growth. You're going to see that variation. Um, Wood is going to have rotten spots. It's going to splinter. It's got grain direction that can cause problems and tear when you cut across the grain too aggressively. Composite lumber doesn't have grain direction. It doesn't have that varying density from one spot to the other. So it actually machines more like a metal. It machines a lot better than wood. The thing you have to worry about are the capstock things. And this is a lot of the decking material where there is a a wood flower composite center with a pure ethylene capstock around it. And that thickness of that capstock will vary from one manufacturer to another. So it's pure plastic on the outside and and wrapped around the uh, wood flower composite. Some of them wrap all the way around. Others only wrap around the top and the sides of the surface, leaving the wood flower exposed on the bottom. The fact of the matter is, is the center core um, is just as weather resistant, maybe not just as weather resistant as the pure plastic stuff, but it's been subjected to the same tests as the ethylene capstock. And moreover, a lot of these manufacturers have this like molecular bonding between the capstock and the wood flower center. So it doesn't come apart. Like it's molecularly bonded. You might have to split the atom and then you're going to create fission and fission in the wood shop is never a good idea that generally results. In, in loud explosions and shadows burnt onto the wall. Bad idea. Yeah, you don't want Hiroshima in your wood shop by splitting the atom. But the point being, you might run into a density difference from the capstock into the wood flower center, but that's a decking product. It's really being sold as decking. It's already shaped and extruded as a decking board. Um, so if you're just looking for composite lumber, there are companies that make pure composite lumber and it's that wood flower center that I'm talking about and the stuff mills and cuts perfectly well. Um, so yeah, if, if you're looking to, to do something along that line, give it a go. Just recognize it is composite. There is wood product in there. So you will see, still see some movement, not nearly as much, um, but it's not like a perfectly, perfectly stable product at the same time. You still want to treat it like you would wood like you would would, just with a little bit more cavalier attitude. How about that? <laughs> Brian wants to make his own plywood. 
So he says, I'd like to create a, stab- a stable panel of walnut for a project. Can I resaw thin pieces and alternate grain direction and have a solid walnut plywood panel? Any tips or concerns, especially around glue type, vacuum bags, or alternatives, multiple strips in a layer to make it wide enough, etc. Easy answer, Brian. Yes, you can do this. Uh, There's absolutely nothing wrong with having a single species panel. In fact, some of the finest plywood, commercial plywood products on the market are 100% the same species. The um, the good quality marine plywoods are all the same species. They're all Akume or they're all Sapile throughout. So there really is no, there is a face veneer and the fact that there is a veneer on the face, but it's not a face veneer in that it's a thinner, different species from the core. It is the exact same species, moreover, the exact same thickness of the ply because it's just all the same species. So absolutely you can do this and it's going to be probably a more predictable panel because you've got the same species. Ideally, you've cut them all out of the same board. So you've got, you know, the same dryness and all that stuff. Really, when it comes down to creating stable plywood, it's it's making sure your individual plies, your individual veneers are dried evenly and consistently from one ply to the other so that when you are laminating them, pressing them together, you're not having a differential in moisture throughout the the, the, the stack, which will cause warping. You know, that's not a good thing. So absolutely, you can do this. And it would be just as simple as cutting out your sheets, um, alternating the grain 90 degrees to one another, gluing them together. And I would I would use a vacuum bag. Commercial plywood plants use pressure and heat to activate their glue, but they have ginormous presses that presses that put thousands and thousands of kilonewtons of force into the panel. The, put it this way, the pressure is so high that you actually could forget the glue and still have a panel come out the other side that's perfectly intact. Now that panel will delaminate over the weeks and months or exposure to moisture, but you actually can have a like what appears to be a glued up panel because of the pressure and the heat is so high that they do actually bond to one another. That just doesn't make sense in the average Joe's wood shop, but a vacuum press allows us to create uniform pressure that's thousands of pounds per square inch. So very good thing. That wonderful column of air that lives above us, AKA the atmosphere, exerts a huge amount of force. Um, And a vacuum bag is probably the way to go. Moreover, depending on the size of the panel you're trying to create, it may be the only option. You know, creating actual clamp press to cover even a two foot by four foot panel is really difficult. It's gonna require a lot of clamps to get even pressure and a simple vacuum bag and a vacuum pump can generate actually more pounds per square inch that way. So I would recommend going with the vacuum bag um, option. I don't even really see there being an alternative other than a platen and like, you know, typical veneer press from above, but that's just going to require the construction of a lot more stuff. It's going to take up a lot more space and, you know, a vacuum bag is really the way to go. Now, if you need to tie strips together in order to make that panel wide enough, this is um, what's known as stitching in the plywood world, A, because there is something that actually stitches together. There are plywood stitching machines where two sheets will be uh, jointed. So you've got a nice flat edge. They're laid side by side and it runs through a giant sewing machine that does a zigzag stitch across and holds it together. That's fine, but then that stitches in your plywood panel. What most companies today do is they joint all those edges, they run it through a glue bath, and then they're laid out 
sequence mats next to one another and pressed together again using a heat activated glue so those veneers are actually then glued together along that jointed edge then those sheets are taken laid together cross laid together and laminated into a larger panel you could do the same thing in your shop but i think what you'll find is if you're making like a single panel at a time which is probably more likely treat it like you would um like a marquetry panel now marquetry panels are probably going to use um veneer tape and you could use veneer tape to glue together one ply at a time set it aside let the glue cure scrape off the tape and now you've got your your plies that's one way to do it but i also think that just laying it up on a um a back platen like you would in your your vacuum bag laying the parts together laying another sheet on top of it and keeping the pressure and the glue helping the stickiness of the glue and this is a great opportunity for something like you know hide glue and even hammer veneering if you wanted to hammer veneer those two sheets together and then put another ply over top of it it's going to hold together um, and as it's pressed it should stay together now there's also always the opportunity you get a little bit of creep in there as things slide around and you get in opening up a void but really if you're careful as you're pulling things together and even taping your sheets together on the edges that could be trimmed off later, you can actually get those seams glued together relatively nicely. And it, you know, it just takes time and a little bit of diligence, but it can be done very easily in you know the average Joe's shop. This again is where the whole vacuum bag idea is a better idea because as the air is sucked out of that bag, it's going to apply uniform pressure and you're gonna not have a tendency of things to slip around in the bag. Also, putting on the glue, laminating things together and then this sounds a little counterintuitive but actually waiting a little bit so the glue starts to get tacky and it's not slipping around then firing up the vacuum press and applying the the pressure that way things are a little bit tacky and they're not going to have a penchant to uh to slip around on you now as far as the glue to use there's a couple of options available really it's um two-part mixes or something that's already mixed. And when we're looking at two-part mixes, um, Unibon um, is the first one that comes to mind, is a brand that comes to mind. Um, that has two parts. There's a, a resin and a hardener that mix together very much like epoxy. Um, there's another product called UltraCat that is actually water-based. So two parts is one's the resin, the other part is water. They have um, the UltraCat water-based stuff has a slightly shorter open time. I want to say it's like 20 minutes, whereas Unibon's more like 30 minutes. UltraCat cures slower, um, eight hours, I believe, as compared to Unibon curing much, much faster in around three hours. In in the individual shop and the, the hobbyist woodworker, cure time's not that big of a deal. We throw it in the vacuum bag, you go to bed, the next day you're generally good. So that cure time's not that big of a deal. I know when we did a big laminated beam project, the cure time was a big deal because we only had one uh, vacuum bag and we had 38 beams to veneer. So we wanted to get them in and out of that bag as fast as possible. So the, the faster cure time was kind of a big deal. Now the cure times can be sped up by adding heat. So if you want to crank up the heat in your shop, it will speed things up. Both of them though, dry to um, a, a very hard and like the the edges can actually be sharp and cut your hands because they're they're they dry quite hard but they're they're hard yet flexible enough to allow for creep and flexible enough to allow um 
actually I should say flexible enough to allow creep that needs to happen as you're as you're pressing it but they dry rigid enough to prevent spring back so like if you're doing a bent lamination a two-part mix like Unibon or UltraCat is a really good idea because it's going to hold it together while you're pressing it but then as it dries it's so rigid that it's going to hold its shape and you're not going to see serious amounts of spring back um, the other stuff, cold press glues, what it'd be called would be where it's just in a glue bottle. Um, there's a, oh, express press, I think, uh, you can get it at Joe Woodworker that I've used quite a lot. It dries very rigid and it actually will control the creep entirely. So if you're doing like a marquetry panel and you're just laying a, a thin layer veneer over some sort of substrate or even putting it over a solid wood substrate where the substrate is going to move, but you don't want it to tear apart your marquetry, that cold press glue can actually be a really good option. And it's got a uh, about the same working time, but the cure time is like an hour. Um, cool stuff. So uh, frankly, if I were laying up a panel, like, you know, small end being two foot by four foot, all the way up to a four by eight panel, I would want to use a Unibond product just because it's just more time tested. The stuff that the, the plants, the actual plywood plants are using are these days, they're soy-based glues in order to be uh, carb compliant or um, Tosca Title VI compliant now. They're using soy-based glues and a lot of that relies upon the heat and the pressure activation. So for the average woodworker, uh, average person who doesn't have a large plywood pressing uh, plant, Unibon or even UltraCat are really good options. And you know, just requiring to mix them up, paint them on with a roller, throw them in the bag and let them cure however long it says for them to cure on the side of the side of the box there. The one thing I will say about the cold press glues is they have a press time and a cure time. And the reason there's a difference is you actually don't want to leave that cold press glue in the vacuum bag through the entire time. You want some oxygen to come in and allow the curing because they're oxidation curing glues. So the press time is the time for everything to kind of tack up and not move around and be relatively rigid. Then you can pull it out of the pressure and let the oxygen cure it the rest of the way. So it's important you recognize there is there are multiple steps there and you can't just walk away and leave it in the vacuum bag for hours and hours and hours and hours. You really just want to leave it in there an hour, pull it out and move on to the next one. So it can be really great if you've got multiple parts that need to be done, multiple pieces of plywood that need to be done. So good luck with that, Brian. I hope uh, I hope that answers your questions. Good luck making plywood. And uh, I'd love to see it. If you make like a solid walnut panel, that'd be really cool to see. Um, it would actually look really cool on the edges as well. It'd be kind of fun to see that. The other thing I will say is look at hybrid cores. You can Google hybrid core plywood and see kind of how they lay in cross banded strips in order to create a more stable panel. And you could really play, instead of just taking one ply cross laminating 90 degrees to the other, you can actually use several parts in your ply and do cross uh, lamination, almost like battens across the panel in order to keep things more stable, keep it flatter. Just look up um, cross or hybrid core plywood and you'll see you'll find some diagrams and things on how some of that it's more than just typical cross lamination going on in there it's cool stuff 
Well, that's it, folks. That's uh, all the questions and industry feedback and all that fun stuff that I want to cover today, at least. Lots more to talk about in the future, but it seems like a good stopping point. So I do want to say thank you to everybody who sponsored the show on Patreon. Um, this really makes it a lot easier to keep the show going. So thank you, everyone. And thank you, everyone, for sending in your questions, sending in those articles. This entire show is essentially put together by you guys. So I love that. I love the audience interaction. And again, um, on my last episode, Episode, I talked about anybody who wants to do kind of that lumber shopping list thing. Um, I've had a couple of responses, but I will throw it out there. People who have a project in mind and want to come on the show and work through your lumber shopping list and hell, even an opportunity to talk about your lumber yard uh, stories and how they could have been better. Maybe I'm all for that. So that's it for me, folks. Go buy some lumber.